One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Alex, hello, Arifa. Arifa, are you back out in London's busy West End? Yeah, I'm a dab hand at it now. We've been out. Us theatre critics have been out since since May uh, in the auditoriums now, uh, sometimes being asked for our COVID passes, sometimes not. Sometimes we see audiences wearing masks, but a lot of the time they're not. So mm. nevertheless, we're out. You know, I'm out four or five times a week and it's it's joyous. I'll never take it for granted. Presumably again. it was exhilarating back in May. Yeah. And yes. uh, I'm not saying you're jaded now here, here in uh, November, <laughs> but how long did it take to for, uh, I don't know, like people rustling packets yes. of Maltesers to be annoying? Oh, listen, I'm so uptight that I remember the one of the first few shows since re- when when we returned, I, I got very emotional when when people laughed collectively or when we clapped at the end. It was really much more moving than I thought it would be. But then very shortly after, I, I'm I'm really really irritable. I'm an irascible <laughs> theatre critic. You know, someone Shame. with a big head, big head comes and sits <laughs> in front of me. It's, it's sort of curtains for them <laughs> no it's not no it's not it's curtains for me there's the joy of being around everybody and then there's a nuisance of it you know the humanness and the close contact and never more so in an auditorium when you're sitting cheek to jowl Alex have you had a moment where you've gone from being uh you know feeling euphoric to be back with a group of people to then feeling hell is other people <laughs> so. they were kind of simultaneous for me because i i decided um june i thought was one of the rare films that is actually worth forking out for the imax experience right the screen made it completely <laughs> worthwhile i know where this is going you go it was absolutely epic the other people in the imax <laughs> less so but it was it was all forgiven because the blade runner 49 was really yeah. beautiful and kind of slightly plotless and 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 kind of insubstantial, and then when you just dump a load of Frank Herbert world building on top of it, it was a mate. Uh, but have you noticed that, Johnny? Have you noticed people are, have forgotten how to be private? There's a sort of edge, isn't there, that is is slightly un, un, uh, that slightly troubles me that people are kind of, you know, it's a sort of what you're going to do about it. I'm back and I'm out and I'm doing whatever the hell I want to do, and I'm sick of being told. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of anger, a lot of anger out there. Yeah, everyone's got the voice from notes from the underground running through their heads all the time. It's so <laughs> the right book for the moment, I yeah, have to yeah. say. <laughs> right, we should. Um, well, let's let's talk about it then. Let's Shall go. We? 
Okay. Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today is a doubly special occasion as we celebrate our 150th episode. 150? I know, it's just unthinkable. But also, almost to the day, the 200th anniversary of the birth of the great Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky. Oh, that's a coincidence. (laughs) (laughs) And yet more coincidences are about to be unraveled. Unsurprisingly, perhaps, you find us in St. Petersburg in 1864, following a gaunt man in his 40s as he walks briskly through the fashionable boulevards of the central city towards the shabby quarter where he lives, a place of cheap restaurants, cheaper brothels, and basement vodka dens where young radicals plot revolution. But there's no time to drink or argue or gamble. He has a journal to edit and creditors to appease. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously, and we're joined today by two guests, Arifa Akbar and Alex Christoffi. Hello, Alex and Arifa. Hello. Hello. Hi, guys. Hello. Arifa is chief theatre critic for The Guardian. A journalist for almost 25 years, she was previously the former literary editor of The Independent, where she also worked as a news reporter and arts correspondent. She has written for The Observer, The FT, and, long-term listeners will recall, she worked for Unbound, uh, as well as Tortoise Media. Her first book, Consumed, A Sister's Story, uh, we talked about on this podcast. I did. And has been long listed for the Bailey Gifford Prize Yay. earlier this year. Congratulations, Arifa. And we thank you. We loved your book, as as you can go back and verify if you listen yes. to this. Loved it. Well, I, I have to say, say thank you for your really generous um, words on it. So yes, thank you. Well, and thank you for coming back because you've been on here a couple of times before. You you come from the old times, Arifa. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they were marvelous. Do you remember the old fashioned days? Oh, the before times. Yeah, yeah, the before times when we sat around a wooden table. Yeah, we talked about Beyond yeah. Black by Hilary Mantel, and you also joined us in Bath at the Bath Festival, oh, where God, we for our Angela Carter episode as well. It was so exhilarating. I love, I loved it. Oh, so they were fun. yeah, I'm back for more. Yeah. Uh, welcome back. Also, for the first time, Alex Christoffi. Hello, Alex. Alex is editorial director at Transworld Publishers and the author of the novels Let Us Be True and Glass, which was winner of the Betty Trask Prize for Fiction. He has written for numerous publications, including The Guardian, The London Magazine, The White Review, and The Brixton Review of Books, and contributed an essay, that's lucky, to the Unbound anthology, What Doesn't Kill You, 15 (laughs) Stories of Survival. He's also just published his first work of non-fiction, which, as luck would have it, is about Dostoevsky, (laughs) is called Dostoevsky in Love, and John and I have both read it, and I would like to say two things about it, Alex. First of all, I recommend it to our listeners as a terrific book in its own right, but also I recommend it to anyone who's preparing a podcast on Dostoevsky uh, <laughs> as a fantastic place to garner a lot of uh, fascinating information and interpretation of Dostoevsky's work. How Have you had a busy year celebrating the 200th anniversary of his birth? It's been around uh, the launch of the book in January. Uh, it was actually really lovely because it was, it, it, oh, lockdown three itself wasn't lovely, but by that point we'd figured out how to do podcasts um, and, and live sort of Zoom events really well. So I had a couple of really lovely events around there um, and, and some very nice coverage in, in print. And it's gone completely silent over the summer. And then, uh, yeah, miraculously, so, for, for some reason, 
in the run-up to his 200th birthday, things have uh, come back around. Get me that Dostoevsky guy, people are saying. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I do, I do sort of feel sometimes a, a couple of things definitely have come about because someone has just sort of Googled Dostoevsky biographer, <laughs> find me, very cheap. <laughs> I tell you what, to be fair, Alex, we've been talking to to you about doing this one for a while, haven't we? And and we 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 then ended up doing the obvious thing, which is going well. It's the two hundredth anniversary, and it's our hundred and fiftieth birthday, and 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 all the rest of it. So, John, why don't you tell us what we need to know about today's book? Notes from the Underground uh, is a short novel, and it was first serialised in Dostoevsky's own short-lived magazine Epoca in eighteen sixty-four, and forgive my Russian, as Zabisky is. Podpolya. It was first published in its English translation uh, uh, in, in uh, 1913 in the Dense Everyman's Library in a translation by C.J. Hogarth. But the classic English translation uh, was by Constance Garnett, which was published by Heinemann in 1918. What is it? It's a book divided into two sections, narrated by the unnamed underground man a recently retired minor civil servant aged 40 living in a shabby apartment in St. Petersburg. The first section is a monologue marked out by its self-loathing and its profound dislike for the utopian philosophy <laughs> based on the enlightened self-interest then fashionable in Russian uh, literary circles. The second half sees the underground man, the angry underground man, revisiting important incidents from his 20s that somewhat undermine the philosophical position he's cobbled together in the first half of the book. He fantasises about getting even with a soldier who bumps into him, finds himself scorned by old school friends, and behaves very badly towards a prostitute who has put her trust in him. Despite the downbeat content, it is widely considered as one of the first and greatest works of existential literature, casting its influence on Nietzsche, Kafka, Beckett, and unbeknownst to them, almost everyone who uses Twitter. <laughs> as the great Russian scholar D.S. Mirsky put it, notes from the underground cannot be recommended to those who are not either sufficiently strong to overcome it or sufficiently innocent to remain unpoisoned. Oof. Yeah, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. This book. <laughs> um, I, before we, but I would like to ask Alex a question yeah. as our resident Dostoevsky expert. Listeners will want to know if they're going to read this book, and let's say they're going to read it for the first time. And I know how reluctant you are to do this, but you're you're here. Come on, <laughs> dance, dance, monkey, dance. <laughs> what? <laughs> Which translation do yeah. you personally recommend that people should read of Notes from Underground? So I might, with the with the sort of huge caveat that um, this is this is absolutely not the definitive last word, and uh, there's no objective <laughs> truth about translations. <laughs> my, well done, very Dostoevsky. My, uh, oh, nice. my preference, my own preference, is Constance Garner. I think I think she's a really good translator, and I think she captures the spirit of Dostoevsky really well. I think some of the modern translators are very good at finding little blind spots and, and fixing those. Each translation will, will inevitably kind of have its um, its additions and subtractions from the text. So the, the famous new one is by uh, Richard Bevere and Larissa Volokhonsky. And, uh, and there were people who, who prefer that one. In some ways, it's a more fastidious translation. You know, the thing that annoys me about the modern one is that if he could say spidery, he says spiderish. 
there's just a sort of lack of mm. poetry in yeah he he i think in some ways is a good translator and a bad writer and yeah Oof. oh that's been my experience over the years i much prefer the mauds tolstoy to a more pseudo authentic translation of tolstoy because you know if the mauds were good enough for tolstoy himself which they were and they write in a pleasingly lyrical style mm. um i'll take it they 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 make it keep it readable and that's how i feel about constance garnet so i'm very interested to hear you say that it's 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 a tricky one isn't it because i mean you know i've read rather more than i probably wanted to about what actually even the title is disputed isn't it is what is the underground is we're, we're going to get on we're going to get fine cool let's, <laughs> yeah, well, let's leave it let's let's, let's ask me what well, I've uh, before we get into the niceties of, of of russian utopian philosophy andy um i, I feel compelled to ask <laughs> you the question what have you been reading this week Right. Well, it wasn't this week, but I'll explain why in a minute. I've been reading a novel called My Phantoms by Gwendolyn Riley. Very good. Uh, her sixth novel, which is published by Granta. You will know that there is a question in the book trade. Do online reviews sell books? Uh, well, I can tell you they do in the case of My Phantoms by Gwendolyn Riley, because a few months ago I was looking around for something to read and I came across a review of this novel uh, on a well-known uh, book selling website and this is what it said absolutely hated this book solely depressing and frustrating no likable characters felt like a complete waste of time uh, regular <laughs> listeners know well that's pretty much everything i look for in a novel so what i did was i walked down into town to our bookshop and i bought a copy of the book purely based on that review and i took it home and i read it and i absolutely loved it it's my favourite novel of this year. And I, then I also ordered up everything else Gwendolyn Riley has ever written, and I read all of that as well. So thank you to that anonymous person who attempted to stop people reading this book. Uh, <laughs> it didn't work, I'm afraid. And I noticed, in fact, this person, when I was preparing this today, I had a look to see what books they did like, and they gave them five stars to a book described as a, a page-turning comfort read that will make you laugh and cry. Well, <laughs> My Phantoms by Gwendolyn Riley is a page-turning discomfort read that will make you laugh and cry unless there's something wrong with you. Uh, now, why haven't I talked about this book before? Well, I'll tell you. Um, because I loved it so much that I wanted to have a few months of... Uh, just having a personal relationship with the novel before sharing it on here because it just bowled me over and I I, I, I felt um, so moved and energised by it that I just didn't want to put myself in the position of having anybody telling me that they didn't like it. <laughs> That's not an invitation. If you've read it, just don't tell me. It's it's fine. You're you're allowed not to like it. But I absolutely loved it. I love Gwendolyn Riley's work. It's a book about narrated by a woman called Bridget, and it's about her relationship with her mother Helen, who is twice divorced, is living alone, is moving into a new flat. They have a very very uneasy relationship, Bridget and Helen. And uh, as I kept reading. I was thinking, how has Gwendolyn Riley done this? How has she gained access to every unworthy thought I've ever had about my so-called loved ones? And 
and put them in a novel and fix them to the page. I mean, I haven't squirmed with pleasure so much since reading Thomas Bernhardt or since we did Something Happened by Joseph Heller on this podcast. Um, she's often been compared to Jean Rhys. I can see that point of comparison. Um, her first novel was published when she was very young. She was 23, won the Betty Trask. That was Cold Water. And there is a criticism of her that she always writes the same book. Um, that Again, that's what's good about her. She has a, such a specific style and such a way of approaching her material that every time she revisits it every few years, she does something new with it. And um, all I can, this, this novel, My Phantoms, hasn't appeared on any prize shortlists, which for me brings the entire British literary establishment into disrepute. Uh, it's absurd this novel hasn't featured. I can only assume people used up all their superlatives and their shortlistings on her last novel, First Love, which was shortlisted for the Gordon Byrne and the Goldsmiths and uh, um, the James Tate Black, won the Jeffrey Faber Memorial Prize. And that is a great novel. But for me, My Phantoms is better. And I'm very aware there's word of mouth around My Phantoms this year. Long-term supporters of her, like Catherine Taylor and uh, John Self on Twitter, banging the drum for this novel. I... I loved it so much. I'm not going to read from it. I'm going to give you a bit of the audiobook. Um, this is from the beginning of chapter two, read by Helen McAlpine. If you like this, go and get this book. I can't know what my mother was like at work. It's still hard to imagine or guess. She maintained that she hated her job. Everybody hates the job, Bridge, she used to say. Everybody does. Later, after she'd retired, she told me that going into the office used to make her feel sick. Absolutely sick to my stomach, yes? Why? I asked. It just wasn't me, she said, frowning. Her antipathy to her circumstances was no spur to change. I think it was the opposite, in a way, back then. My mother loved rules. She loved rules and codes and fixed expectations. I want to say, as a dog loves an airborne stick. Here was unleashed purpose, freedom of a sort. Here too was the comfort of the crowd and of joining in, of not feeling alone and in the wrong. In conversation, or attempted conversation, her sight seemed set on a similar prize. She enjoyed answering questions when she felt that she had the right answer, an approved answer. I understood that when I was very small and could provide the prompts accordingly. Then talking to her was like a game or a rhyme we were saying together. You hated being an only child, didn't you? I might say. And she would say, oh yes, I hated it, yes. And after I had Michelle, I knew I had to have another baby because I always vowed I could never have just one. I think it's cruel to have just one. She painted a beguiling picture, if you were susceptible to that kind of thing. Lonely, only child. Breathless little girl who had to do this and had to do that. I was not susceptible. But then, nor did I ever quite feel that I was the intended audience when she took on like this. There was some other figure she'd conceived and was playing to. That's how it felt. Somebody beyond our life. 
Yeah, it's the perfect Christmas gift. <laughs> buy, buy it for your mum. Uh, John, what have you been reading this week? Um, well, I've also been reading something which I, I, I could hardly recommend as a sort of a, a, a feel-good read. It's, I think, rather a brilliant collection of new stories. first collection by uh, Vanessa Onumezi. Um, published Dark Neighbourhood, um, published by Fitzcarraldo, the ever excellent Fitzcarraldo, and as you would e- expect, it although she is uh, based in London, um, it is a book that feels very international. Um, you know, it, it feels it reminds me very much of uh, Fernanda Melcor, whose book Hurricane Season I, I, I talked about. Can't even remember when that was, but some time ago, and unloved. But also she has that kind of international strangeness that uh, I think uh, Ely Williams has. Uh, there are times in this collection of stories when I was f- also reminded of strongly of um, of Clarice Lispector, which mm-hmm. is a you know big that's a big comparison to make. But given that it's a first collection, it's it's dark. These stories are full of they're full of shame and loss and fear, but the language is beautiful, really, really, really precise and beautiful and 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 resonant and original. I found myself kind of getting, you know, that you know that thing where you uh, you read a writer for the first time, it takes a while for you to trust them. But once I got mm. into the the first chapter in this book, Dark Neighborhood, which is the eponymous um, story, once you get into the in, into the heart of it, you realise that there's a kind of it's a dystopian fantasy about a group of. I'm going to read a little short piece from it. There's no there's no audible uh, there's no audible way out for me. So I'm going to read you a short piece. <laughs> uh, it's basically two women who are trading goods. There's it's that sense of displacement. It could be anywhere. It could be. It could be on the border between America and Mexico. It could be in the Middle East. Funnily enough, they're waiting to go through a gate, which reminded me very strongly of that. Um, the ending of the Kurtzier novel, uh, Mary Costello, which we did. Uh, that mm. it's so yeah. it has that kind of. Dis- they're waiting to get through a gate. Nobody really knows how you get through the gate, but they don't want to lose their place in the line, and they're trading goods to to, to stay there. So. Almost a kind of Ridley Walker feel to it as well about the yeah. you know the stuff that they find these toys and bits and bobs that they're selling to people. She's a very visceral, I think, extremely uh, accomplished. This is a ama- amazingly accomplished first selection. It is dark. It's not going to be for everybody. It does require that you you have to you know you have to sharpen up your um your your, your kind of mind a little bit. To, to, to sometimes the way that she, there's a there's a there's a kind of a stylistic thing she does. She leaves gaps and instead of having a comma, she'll she'll write the word comma in brackets. Sarah Hall also comes to mind. The prose is really really strong. The characters are strong. The situations. There's a brilliant story about some Spanish cleaners in, in uh, working in a hideous kind of office. But this is from the, the dark neighbourhood. I'll read you a little bit. Emerged from the labyrinth dung heap, I walk back to my pile, passing the line of waiting people. Whispers of the last statement from the gate still bounce from mouth to mouth, just as the words had bound. So the gate speaks from time to time. Whispers from the last statement of the gate still bounce from mouth to mouth, just as the words had bounced around my mind. Can't blame us. What else is to think or speak? The people here say, love is hard. That much has arrived undistorted. But then, as Stevie says, the statement morphs and interpretation is anyone's to make. Love is a hard shell that must be cracked. Love is done and must be buried. And a few kilometres further away and away and away, it becomes something like bury your loved ones. 
all from a single source, comma, who? The God from the gate? There are floodlights high above us, illuminated both day and night, erase the moon, intensify the sun. No child born here will ever know the moon waxing or its smile that wanes to a slither of silver. New moon, the cold half moon. To live in a world filled with light is like being slowly erased, no longer knowing down or up, yes or no, day or true night. Light upon light is darkness. The first time I heard the gate speak, human voice crackling through the speaker system. It seemed genuine as we wrapped our fists on metal door of it. It, that had appeared this day I mentioned, blocking our path on a cold walk home. I have a good friend in your position, it said. Nobody should have to go through what you're going through, it said. We take your concerns very seriously. <laughs> I asked to be specific. Who is this friend and what happens to them next? Shouting in the direction of the speaker. But a man next to me, open bracket, who had all his teeth, whose breath was mint fresh, who was a smart casual dresser and spoke well, with an accent more trustworthy than most, including my own, close bracket, explained to me that this empathy should be considered sincere and that we should be reasonable people and wait. I had no words for the dense feeling in my stomach. It didn't deserve expression just then. I decided to sit and rest in place amongst a crowd of people trapped on the path that came to be known as the way through. And when we remained reasonable people, as the next hundred, then thousand people bedded down in following nights, as the first trees were felled for firewood, the first tooth was pulled, a baby was born, gunshot fired, yes, is my answer to all that. And still a yes, I rest in place, bathed in the hellish acid lemonade, watching my head roll over the moving sky in this eternal waiting room, only one magazine to be found. Our salvation on the other side of the gate seems assured. We hear long cries of bliss from over there that say, hold on just a few days more. There, vague history of how I came to be stationary one day on this space of tarmac. It's great, John. I'm excited that we're celebrating our 150th uh, episode with a, the cavalcade of bleakness. <laughs> um, so that's uh, Dark Neighbourhood. Now, who's it? Who's who's the publisher? It's Fitzcarraldo. Um, so, and it's Vanessa Uemezi. And uh, I think both you could probably get both, both those books for about twenty quid, or borrow from the, borrow them from the library. They are they are not um, hard to find or expensive, unless of course you're in the states, where I don't, I don't think either of those books are available. I'm sorry about that, everybody. <laughs> the book chat will continue on the other side of this message. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use gift mode. 
Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. When this episode goes live, I want to put it on the internet as backlisted episode 150, Notes from Under the Floorboards by Fyodor Dostoevsky. <laughs> would I be justified in doing that? Yeah, you absolutely would. So Hogarth, the first translator, uh, he went for Letters from the Underworld, which yeah. was just not very good. <laughs> <laughs> The next attempt was Constance Garnett, who I've already laid my cards on the table and said, I yeah. think Constance Garnett's pretty good. She called it Notes from the Underground, and it stuck. And, you know, the notes in this is the, this word that John said, Zapiski, which is like, it's kind of its own genre. So it's um, the point is that I, the author, have just opened a drawer in some random deserted house and found a bunch of, like, scribblings or jottings mm. by... Uh, some imagined third party. And look, I'm dumping them on you, reader, in this journal. Uh, and and it's sort of not my fault what they contain. And that was that was good because it distances the author from the text. And uh, it, it's kind of useful with the censors as well because, you know, you're not saying it's your opinions. Uh, so the notes part's really important. Um, and then the underground thing, I think underground is, is a, a really good instinctive word but in the most literal sense it's notes from under the floorboards so like the english species of house monster uh lives under the bed of course uh, or sometimes in cupboards but generally under the bed but the russian russian sort of house devils and things uh you, you're quite likely to find your evil spirits living under the floorboards almost a kind of supernaturally element to it yeah i mean he's definitely haunting us <laughs> yeah yeah so yeah. okay so so if it's good enough for both alex christoffi and howard devoto we can <laughs> call it notes from under the floorboards when it goes up i'm incredibly excited that we're going to do that uh great that's excellent arifa akbar when did you first read notes from under the floorboards <laughs> I, um i was an undergraduate I was, I think it was my first year at university. I, I think it was on, on a course list. And I was thrilled because it was a short novel, a very short novel. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. I think I was a 19-year-old, navel-gazing as often the 19-year-olds are, emphatically non-conformist student, undergraduate, English student. And I 
you know, and I hated everybody and, and I hated myself <laughs> in, in that in that sort of really immature 19-year-old way. And I opened up this book purely relieved because it was a short Dostoevsky novella. And I was on fire because I related to its loathing of other people, you know, um, loathing of itself, that the narrator's sort of self-loathing, um, its defiance, its refusal to be to conform, but also its sort of inability to find a philosophy, because at that age, you know, we're all finding ways of living and what we believe and what we don't at that sort of that those teen, early twenties. And I saw that this 40-year-old was sort of grappling with my angst, the, the, the sort of angst that I was going through then, that on the cusp of, of being a, a grown-up with a philosophy for life. And and I was reading the things you read as an undergraduate, like the metamorphosis, you know, Kafka, and I was reading Bartleby the Scrivener. And I was joining up the narrator here with Bartleby, with mm. um, Gregor Samsa, mm, mm. with their refusals with their rebellions in whichever way and what i was fascinated by was not just the anger the rage at himself and the rage at others was the paralysis i thought that was a very interesting Mm. way to resist and rebel a bit like bartleby the scrivener by not doing we must have been on similar courses i read this as a student and what was interesting going back to it is actually often you go back to a book for this where you've read a long time ago and you you think you find it a totally different experience actually this one felt the same because i remembered so strongly how it had affected me when i first read it when i was 19 and it had much the same effect now alex when did you first read this or when did you first read dostoevsky Actually, the first one I read was was Crime and Punishment. And it's so, actually it was so interesting that you say Bartleby the Scrivener because there's a minor character in this that um, it, he's not kind of talked about much in criticism because he doesn't sort of really do anything much. But there's a the, the underground man's servant called Apollon. Uh, oh, yeah. he, he is literally just Bartleby sat in the background and just refusing to do anything or to say anything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's yeah. such an interesting character and he just... He invents him and then just throws him away. So he takes about 20 yeah, pages. Yeah. But yeah, I got into university and then uh, after the elation had died down, I realised that then I was going to have to sort of have opinions on literature. And I, and I was terrified. <laughs> and um, uh, so yeah. over the summer after my A-levels, I was, I was browsing around in a bookshop and looking for things that looked like serious literature that I could have opinions on. And I saw this book that said Crime and Punishment. And I thought, well, you know, two serious things were all in one. You know, it's like a bumper edition. <laughs> um, like head and shoulders yeah Yeah. (laughs) so i thought you know this would be the one for me and and actually the the thing that it really that really sort of shocked me and it's it sounds like such an obvious thing but it was this idea that literature could actually be quite dangerous that you know that you've got a young man whose avowed mission is to is to murder two old ladies by beating he stows their head in with the blunt end of an axe i mean it's not it you know he doesn't gloss over it um and then you spend a lot of the novel trying to figure out like how this came about he doesn't even seem to know himself it was a, a violent but also a kind of mysterious book that, that didn't quite tell you everything it was trying to sort of force me to work it out 
and I and I don't think I got it straight away, but it, but I then I had the the bug, and then I started reading more Dostoevsky. So the voice, really. Yeah. The voice more than the sense. Yeah, and yeah. actually the identifying and giving life to that sort of angry young man, and and it's so interesting because there's very few people who intimately understand that that man, and it sort of probably is a man. At, there are few people who can animate him and tell you where he's going wrong or show you. Mm-hmm. Mitch, had you read this before? Oh, yeah, I'd read it at university. Going back to it, I have to say, it's it's chilling how, <laughs> as I said, how how it applies still. Do I feel differently about it? No, probably I don't in a, in a mm. way that you sometimes revise. I'm just am- amazed at still how angry and sad it is. It's just, it's an amazing book. The way we're going to do this episode of Backlisted is we're going to hear a few clips and then I'm going to ask our panel to comment on them. So here's the first one. All that makes men and women saints or sinners, the furies that rage in their hearts, the fires that burn in their flesh, now storms the screen in the seething story of a master storyteller. The Brothers Karamazov. Alexei, I see in myself the same depravity and sin as there is in our father. I'm a Karamazov. My father is very romantic. Very much. He wants to marry me. Hmm. And if I marry him, that makes me be your mother. This is the explosive story of the Karamazov family. The seed of depravity and sin that was in their father was the only thing the brothers had in common. Lee J. Cobb gives an astounding performance as the father. Albert Salmi makes an auspicious screen debut as the sinister, illegitimate son. You wouldn't kill your own son, would you? Do you want to kill me, darling? Stop talking such foolishness, Papa. The saintly Alexei is portrayed by William Shatner. Co-star Richard Basehart vividly portrays the smoldering intellectual Ivan. Slut. That's not becoming of a lady. You're on sale to any man. I didn't go to Dimitri's room for 5,000 rubles, did I? I'd give the rest of my life for one year, one day, one hour of your love. William Shatner in perhaps his most famous role, right? <laughs> wow. In that trailer for the film The Brothers Karamazov made in the 60s, uh, uh, John, you will have spotted that Dostoevsky was described as a master storyteller. <laughs> Aretha, hmm. is that a fair description of Dostoevsky, a master storyteller? Well, I'm going to answer that question by focusing on notes from the underground. Oh, I'm sorry, notes from under the... Floorboards. Floorboards. All notes from underground. It's fine. It's just, it's fine. Whatever's easiest. If, if, if I think of the novel I read after, which is the, the, the novel he wrote after a year after this one, uh, Crime and Punishment. Yeah, that's master storytelling, sweeping, it hurtles along. It still has those pauses and meditations and almost mini essays on morality and volition that we get here. I did feel very differently about this story now. I was more emotionally appalled by it 
but I also found it far funnier than I ever did before. <laughs> but mm, what struck so me more was its form, was its form. So, so this, I'm going to address this question specifically to this story. And I think what's amazing about this story is that he's not a master storyteller in the traditional form whatsoever here. He's making this, the story really unstable. You know, he's giving us a really quite turgid treatise on philosophies of living, of the enlightened critique on in the Enlightenment, uh, ideas, his own perhaps authorial voice about free will, the freedom to live perversely or spitefully, as he says. He, you know, we don't know whether this is Dostoevsky speaking or the underground man or a melding of both. And there's that treatise that actually is like treacle to get through or was for me. And I was thinking, hang on a minute, storyteller here, the master storyteller, what's he doing? He's giving us this enormous essay. But then the second section killed me, the second yeah. and third, mm. because then he shows you something else. He shows you the Dostoevsky that can sweep you in within pages. I was mortified for the underground man's uh, excruciating, intolerant, mm, mm. and painful meeting with his reunion with his friends, oh, with his so called friends, and then the encounter with the prostitute, which wasn't just him preaching at a prostitute to change her ways and being the moralist. It was something much more emotionally perverse. You know, he was on, almost inviting her into his life by saying, here's my address, come, I can be your rescuer, and then not rescuing her, becoming her tyrant, and actually self-sabotage once again, because I mm, believe mm. that narrator wanted this woman, Lisa, much more than she needed him, mm. you know, and, and yet he couldn't be the lovable man. He couldn't be loved and he couldn't give love. So Dostoevsky goes from the, the treatise that locks you out in a way, and I almost wanted to throw this book out, and I thought, what, what on earth am I reading this for? I wanted to cast it to the side. <laughs> but then he, he then shows you how to write a really emotionally engaged story for and he sweeps you in and then he pushes you out at the end saying well i could go on because mm, he, yeah, he very yeah. uh, he says Brilliant. at the end there's more story here but i don't i'm not going to tell you you don't need to read it <laughs> unbelievable so what he's doing is something very tricksy almost it's sort of very 20th century yeah, yeah. and very postmodern well, also, with this unreliability and instability also very 21st century in as much as when i was rereading i said you know i was reminded me when i was a student but actually it's sort of i was thinking what is this why i'm reading this what is this like oh yeah i know what this reminds me of it reminds me of being awake at 3 in the morning and uh, my own self-loathing coursing through my head as I run through every single thing I've ever said and done, which I feel embarrassed or bad or angry about, right? It's like that inner monologue, uh, unstoppable, unless you choose to stop it or you fall asleep, if you're lucky. But Alex, the, the master storyteller element, I mean, we have a running joke on Battlestead about the phrase master storyteller, but I'm really interested in the idea of how Dostoevsky created a reputation for himself as a you know a king of narrative when so much of his work is discursive yeah. and and theological and philosophical you know is it true to say some books are more plot based than others or 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 does that not apply in Dostoevsky's yeah I, I think it is true um 
He does, I think with his longer novels, he, he loves a subplot. And I think in the ones that he, uh, where he didn't do as many drafts as he'd have liked to because he was heavily in debt, he, uh, <laughs> he, he, tended, he tended in his early drafts towards melodrama. Uh, the, the main plots are always really kind of beautifully worked out and sometimes it gets kind of weirdly patchy around the edges. I think, I think where you see the Brothers Karamazov is him taking his time. And then you think, oh my God, couldn't can someone have just been giving you some money because this is incredible? When he's at his full, mm. his full kind of capability, I think. I with weirdly with notes from the underground, I think it, <laughs> sort of a master in the sense that he's doing exactly what he wants to do, which is it's this sort of diptych. And the first one, he's kind of slightly sending up uh, a couple of his contemporaries who wrote these like really turgid theological, like pseudo-theological crappy yeah. uh, texts. I mean, the, the most influential of which was um, kind of objectively impossible to get through uh, in narrative terms. <laughs> but it was a very, very influential book with What is to be Done by Nikolai Chernyshevsky. And they were on completely opposite sides of, of the, po- the political spectrum. Such a great title. I love it. Yeah, and, and Lenin loved it so much he nicked it. That's right. Uh, yeah. So, um, so that's what he's doing in in this in the first part of this diptych is basically writing a sort of a sort of slightly ill composed um, thing with loads of weird digressions and things in brackets uh, as a as a bit of a mix take, I think. And then in the second one, he's sort of looking at where that generation came from. They were they they were all born into. They were really influenced by when they were all in their 20s, uh, it was the generation of the 1840s. And they were all romantics. They, they loved Schiller. They loved the beautiful and the, and the good and the, the sort of sublime. <laughs> and they absolutely loved stories where, you know, a, a noble young man would come and save a prostitute and, and she would be so thankful. And he, so, so he kind of does, he does that. And then he doesn't give you what the romantics would have wanted. He gives you this sort of horribly real and like very psychologically insightful and yes. um yeah. and, yes. and kind of twisted version of that he seems to me to be suspicious right at the I mean, it's fascinating because i i know also he was a huge dickens fan mm. but he seems almost to be suspicious of the what you might kind of call the healing power of fiction, you know, that he, he can't quite allow himself to. That's why he doesn't. I mean, maybe Crime and Punishment is is a good example. Maybe some of the shorter, you know, Gambler is is he he doesn't allow himself as as Alex said. He he. I mean, he's excellent. He's very, he's really good at plot, <laughs> but it, he can't. It, that's not enough for him. He wants mm. to push it further, and it's like with this. You know, you're gonna to have to really work quite hard to get to the narrative bits. I mean, I have to say, I I do like the ranting. I mean, I think it's high. I do think it's high. Oh, qu- I love the the ranting. Yeah. Is the it's high quality <laughs> ranting. I just like to pick up something Alex said. You know, Alex, my fa- one of my favourite bits in your book, Dostoevsky in Love, is the description of the composition of his novella, The Gambler. Yeah. Which he had to write in about three weeks yeah. because he'd signed this incredibly stupid deal. 
Uh, it's one of the most terrible stories in literature. It's, it's like it's like a negative of It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> it's a terrible life, right? He has to get this in by midnight on a particular day, and he does it with two hours to spare, right? Because yeah. he's gambled away all the money, so he thinks to himself, what I better do is sign up to a shit deal and write a novel about a gambler. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. But your point is really valid. What would he have done with a patron? Yeah. Mm. You know, if he had been supported, what? how different would his work mm. have been? Well, you know, interestingly, at the point where he works him, his way out of debt he is when he sort of starts planning the Brothers Karamazov. And he kind of has a patron in the sense that he starts to get in with the more conservative circle around the Tsar. And there's some suggestion that maybe he, he got a sort of bit of a one-off windfall um, via one of these people from the Tsar to pay off his remaining debts. Not really him, his his wife, who was much, much better with money than he was, started mm. self-publishing his works in, after they'd been serialised, the first edition, the first complete edition. So they, they were actually making better money at that point. And that was when he was able to kind of put together this incredibly impressive structural edifice of, of the Brothers Karamazov, which just wasn't possible before. But yeah, the gambler was a, a ridiculous pursuit. I mean, he gave it, the deal was you, you had twelve months to write a, a novel of at least one hundred and sixty pages. The first eleven months, he wrote a completely different book for us. He was writing *Crime and Punishment*, and then he sort of went to the guy and said, "Could I have an extension?" And the guy said, "No, I, I want your copyrights." I'm trying to blackmail you. Terrible it's, though. It's so the the worst thing I, I, that story just chilled me. It's the worst. You know, thing. you mentioned you mentioned Bartleby. Yeah. by Herman Melville. Melville says, you know, what you need for a novel is time, strength, cash, and patience. <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's the Dostoevskian formula right there, right? Uh, what would I do if I had time, strength, cash, and patience? He had none of those. Um, I wonder, Aretha, could you read us a little bit from Notes from Underground so we could get a, a sense of the one of the voices? Sure. Would you like me to re read the beginning bit? Oh, that'd be perfect. Yes, please. I am a sick man. I'm an angry man. I'm an unattractive man. I think there's something wrong with my liver. <laughs> but I don't understand the least thing about my illness, and I don't know for certain what part of me is affected. I'm not having any treatment for it, and never have had, although I've had a great respect for medicine and for doctors. I am extremely superstitious, if only in having such respect for medicine. Brackets, I'm... Well-educated enough not to be superstitious, but superstitious I am. No, I refuse treatment out of spite. That is something you'll probably not understand. Well, I understand it. I can't, of course, explain who my spite is directed against in this matter. I know perfectly well that I can't score off the doctors in any way by not consulting them. I know better than anybody that I'm harming nobody but myself. All the same, if I don't have treatment, it's out of spite. Is my liver out of order? Let it get worse. <laughs> <laughs> what I love about this, it's just an enormous fuck you, this book. It really is. I mean, it really it's, is. It's you know like, what I think it is, though? It's an enormous fuck you. You know, hell is other people, yeah, but it's yeah. enormous fuck me, too. That's what yeah, I think is yeah. tragic. It's Hell is myself. I, I got that from a New Yorker article I was just reading. It, uh, it was written a good few years ago. Uh, and the philosophy... Is that the David Denby one? Yes. Yeah, that's yeah, great. That's really and interesting. You know, 
And the narrator is sort of saying, hell is myself, mm. my split self, my mm-hmm. perverse mm-hmm. self, my self-destructive self. You know, the, all the things that Freud was going to say, all the things that the 20th century would reveal about psychology, um, you know, are acute self-consciousness. Um, he was saying, this narrator was saying, and that's why I find it, you know, there's a pleasure in that despair, isn't there? There's Absolutely. a threat, but a reveling in yeah, it as well, which I find, you know, I, it's almost like Woody Allen for the 19th <laughs> yeah, century, yeah, yeah, yeah. this neurotic. I think Dostoevsky was being funny on purpose. There's really funny lines in there. I was laughing out loud. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you mentioned um, hell, and uh, that's uh, a pleasing uh, uh, opportunity to hear from former Archbishop of Canterbury, Dr. Rowan Williams, <laughs> uh, who, has written, uh, uh, who has written a book about is a, a, a Dostoevsky. And Alex, I'm going to ask you to respond to what, uh, how you feel. It's fine. He, he probably will never hear this. You can respond to what he says here about Dostoevsky's work. I suppose what impresses me most about Dostoevsky is something he said himself about his own work, that he believed that as a, as a Christian he could put the case against God and against faith even more strongly than an atheist could. He quite deliberately sets out to to show that being a Christian doesn't mean you have to close your eyes to the horrors and outrages of the world, the the horrors of children suffering, how perhaps freedom isn't, isn't good for us and perhaps we'd be better off as slaves or automata. And for him, the answer is simply that love is real, love is embodied, that there is never a human situation which is without hope. And part of what he's trying to speak about is not, again, something that makes suffering less important. It's really to put into into relief just how much love, just how much profoundly sacrificial love is called out from us in a world where suffering is so deep and so appalling. So that's part of what he's, he's trying to do. He's inviting us to think what it might mean, as he likes to say, to take responsibility for the world we're in. And all his great novels are in one way or another about that taking of responsibility. And the characters who are for him rather fishy, rather unsatisfactory, are the characters who, one way or another, walk away from that responsibility. The characters who try to manipulate other people and control them rather than take loving responsibility for them, the characters who brush it all off and live for pleasure and self. So his novels are a very deep gospel-shaped challenge for me. I mean, first of all, I'd like to say I think that's absolutely magnificent. If you have a chance to follow the link on our website, watch the whole speech because it's brilliant. But I'm not sure I agree with Dr. Williams. <laughs> Alex, how do you feel? Uh, I I see what he's getting at, which I think it. So in so to to sort of interpret it through um, notes from the underground, that it it's a part of what makes it a weird book is that it's fighting on a couple of different fronts. So you've got this question of the ego, uh, which is absolutely central to the book, um, but it sort of keeps turning up in different ways, and it's, it's hard to know what to do with it. I think what he starts doing in, in the first section is you've got all these young radicals who basically say, if, if we all 
knew uh, how the world really was, to act in our rational self-interest would just be would be to act in everyone's interest, and then we'd create this lovely world. And um, the the image at the end of that um, terrible book I've mentioned, the what is to be done. The image they end with is this crystal palace, and is made of. He absolutely loves aluminium, so everything's made. All the furniture is made of aluminium, <laughs> yeah, it's the same. and um, and glass, and it's a bit like yeah. the sort of English crystal palace, which actually Dostoevsky visiting absolutely hated, and <laughs> so he kind of conflates these things in his head and says, you know, you think basically you take God out of the equation, and we're all just going to be nice and live in communes, and you know, you're going to create a socialist utopia. The reason that's not going to happen is we don't act in our rational self-interest. We're yeah. all the time we're perverse. You know, if if I could stamp on my own foot to prove that I was free, I'd do it, you know? And so I mm. kind of think that's part of what's behind the first part of it. And where it comes into this, uh, what, what Archbishop um, Williams was talking about, it, it, about love, what you see is, he's managed to disprove those, you know, rational ego- egoists, the underground man, but he's still missing the point. Yeah. The only person who gets it is the person who has read the fewest books. He, Lisa, yeah. He's going to, he's sort of pretending, oh, I'm going to mm. save you, the young prostitute. You don't know anything. I'm going to come and I'm going to elevate you with my noble ro- romantic ideals with a big R. And then yeah. and uh, he's so caught up in his own ego that the act which absolutely devastates him and which I think genuinely makes the, the ending feel devastating and it's quite hard to understand why, is he acts with absolute malice towards her and her response is that she she hugs him. Yeah. And I don't know if you've I don't know if anything's ever happened to you like that in real in real life, but if you've ever in a fit of peak you've and you say something you don't intend, you say something unkind. The absolute worst thing someone can do, the most devastating thing, is just to look at you and say, God, you're really suffering, aren't you? <laughs> yes. Mm. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 yeah, yeah. It is devastating, that the ending, for that reason. You know, at one point he says, I have to be a master or a slave. He, he gets very Nietzschean at one point. He talks about his need to tyrannise or be tyrannised. And she upends those binaries you know the master slave because she does something that's just human and very humane yeah i think she triumphs over him and it's not just the hug it's that she walks away you know she just walks away he calls after her she's gone off who knows what transformation has taken place for her whereas he's back in his miserable little world it's so hard to imagine that this was written so far before the Russian Revolution and the horrors that that, that came afterwards, mm. and yet you kind of mm. see he he. There's a brilliant passage. I just love this where this this from the Ranty section, where he says, <laughs> "You see, man is stupid, phenomenally stupid. That is to say, even if he's not totally stupid, then he's so ungrateful that one shouldn't expect anything else of him." For example, I should not in the least be surprised if suddenly, for no reason at all, some gentleman or other with a dishonourable, or shall we say, a reactionary and sarcastic demeanour, springs up amidst this future reign of universal good sense and puts his hands on his hips and says to us all, well, gentlemen, why don't we get rid of all this good sense once and for all? Uh, Mm, Give it a kick, throw it to the wind, 
just in order to send all these logarithms to hell so that we can once again live according to our own foolish will. Who can you be thinking of? (laughs) And this wouldn't matter either, but it's upsetting that he would undoubtedly find followers. That's the way man is made. It's quite modern. Trump. (laughs) (laughs) We're all there, right? I know. We're all there. It's chilling to read it. And the word followers really just... Yeah, yeah. I just like to say to listeners, if you can hear fireworks, it's because people are celebrating the 200th birthday of Dostoevsky. (laughs) But also, it's bonfire nights when we're recording this. So so Nabokov uh, uh, gave a series of lectures about Russian literature in the 1950s when he was uh, teaching literature. And they were gathered together in a book called Lectures on Russian Literature, which I strongly recommend to listeners. One of my favourite of Nabokov's books. Um, And... He has this specific, he's not a big Dostoevsky fan, and he has this specifically to say about um, Notes from the Underground. He says, Notes from the Underground, 1864. The story whose title should be Memoirs from Under the Floor, so let's just add him to our... (laughs) So that's Howard DeVoto, Alex, and Nabokov, right? Notes from Under the Floorboards. Bears in translation the stupidly incorrect title of Notes from the Underground. The story may be deemed by some a case history, a streak of persecution mania with variations. My interest in it is limited to a study in style. It is the best picture we have of Dostoevsky's themes and formulas and intonations. It is a concentration of Dostoevskyana. Uh, I should warn you at this point that the first part of the story, 11 little chapters, are significant not in what is expressed or related, but in the manner it is expressed and related. The manner reflects the man. This reflection Dostoevsky wishes to fix in a cesspool of confessions through the manners and mannerisms of a neurotic, exasperated, frustrated, and horribly unhappy person. (laughs) Now... Right, I absolutely, I mean, I love this essay, this essay on Dostoevsky by Nabokov. It's very funny, uh, uh, apart from anything else. But there is a point there which I think is worth exploring. Manner over matter. You know, the matter of Notes from the Underground is perhaps rather esoteric, but the manner is the thing which communicates itself to us now. So in that respect, Nabokov is right, isn't he? So we're saying he's a stylist, you know. Style over substance. <laughs> yeah, he could be playing with the style. What what I'm seeing here is almost the creation of the modern psychology. But I personally don't feel that's what this novella is about. Yeah. Um, I, I do think it's about uh, philosophy, substance too. I, do, I don't think it's all sophist that he's playing with no. with words as a way of being a stylist. I think he's saying something um, important about the, you know, about psychology and also about suffering. He's tying Mm. suffering, the Mm. right Mm. to suffer, uh, the right to do things that aren't good for us, as we all do. He's acknowledging that as a part of human psyche, that sometimes, for example, you fall in love with the wrong person, you know they're the wrong person, that's so human. You do things like rejecting 
somebody you feel like Lisa, he does, he rejects Lisa, even though he wants Lisa the prostitute. You do put these perverse things because you're human. And, you know, a lot of the time we're acting unconsciously, yeah, aren't we? Yeah. And it makes for good literature. So I hmm, think he's giving yeah. us the scope of humanity. He's putting suffering and perversity in the scope of human psychology and saying, maybe this is part of freedom. Yeah. Two and two doesn't equal four. Two and two sometimes equals five. There's a wonderful bit in that opening section where he leads up to saying, well, I can understand why people find the idea of two and two equaling four so appealing. But that doesn't negate the liberation of two and two equaling five. I mean, this <laughs> is this, this, this is this is an anti-algorithm tract. Yeah, wow. <laughs> that's why fiction is the closest we can get by imagination and. But you know, you can't run the people aren't machines. Mm. But he could be doing both. You know what Nabokov <laughs> what Nabokov's saying is yeah. really he's playing with style. Yeah, he's yeah, being yeah. very tricksy, and he is doing that to some degree. But I also believe that in earnestness, he is putting together a story that that uh, explores freedom, um, freedom even when it's self-destructive, uh, the limits of freedom, the goodness of you know expressing freedom in that way. So I, I think he's he's doing that in earnestness with his character. Mm, he's mm, not just playing. Yeah. No, no. Alex, um, Nabokov versus Dostoevsky. <laughs> it's, well, the thing is that um, I think N Nabokov, as a sort of general policy, felt that, that no opinion worth having should, uh, should be a weak opinion. You know, you just, if you're going to go, <laughs> if you're going to have an opinion, you've got to go to the very limit. And it was, it was that extremity, which I actually think he kind of loves and doesn't want to recognize that commonality between himself and Dostoevsky. You know, yeah. if you see, you know, if, um, what it always felt like to me was that he, he sort of saw someone else play a sort of trick shot at a pool and he mm. he didn't get the chance to say he could do that trick shot too because the other guy did it first. So he's he's just really annoyed <laughs> at the fact that this guy has created, yeah. you know, yeah. he, he does borrow themes and ideas quite liberally from Dostoevsky whilst insisting that there's sort of, he's completely irredeemable and there's nothing to love about him. You know, there, there, it's a very Oedipal relationship, I think. In terms of style, the thing that I always... I, I thought was so interesting with notes from the, so the less so the second part, because it's more of a straight narrative. But what I find so kind of intriguing about the first part is that he, you know, just at the point where you're thinking, come on, are you going anywhere with it? You know, this is, there, there's lots of yeah. things I'm underlining, but also you, you're not taking me anywhere. You turn the page and he says, I can tell I'm irritating you now, aren't I? And you're like, what? <laughs> what the hell? And then later on, he says, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to, this is my big theory about the world. But um, of course, you would argue that uh, this blah, 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 blah. Uh, but anyway, this is me speaking now. I would tell you this. And um, well, don't shout me down. Like, let, let me finish. And he, <laughs> he stages this whole thing, putting words in your mouth and preempting every, every time you think that you know where it's going or, or whatever it is, he will do a little swerve. And, it, and what it's performing stylistically is this feeling that it's not running on rails. The world isn't deterministic. I think that's really yeah, interesting. Yeah, brilliant. It's also, it has a, 
and a, a passive-aggressive, rather antagonistic relationship <laughs> to the reader, just <laughs> as uh, Lolita and Pale Fire do. Yeah, yeah, to yeah. To bring it back to Nabokov, you know, the idea that you're you're exasperated with the the reader's <laughs> expectations is a great a great appeals to me very greatly. There's, I find that there's very a great funny. line of Mikhail Bakhtin's about that, which said that it's basically that what's innovative is that is that he's every word is directed at the anticipated response of the reader now cringing mm. now shrill and Brilliant. spiteful the tone rising at the end of each section in open anticipation of the reader's response <laughs> and that that is a, that is original you don't you don't get that in dickens in the same way i i think style is substance here that's my answer uh. to Nabokov. style <laughs> is substance that's the point you know the the substantial element is the is the stylistic yeah, realization yeah, yeah. of uh, not even an inner monologue, but a a a, a, a self contradictory monologue. Yeah. That's that's the great triumph but the, there. But that's that's also Andy, isn't it? That's the reason in the end you can't go with Rowan Williams because there is what he's creating here is ne- is proper negative capability. He's not yeah. he, he's creating something that the reader can enter and has to figure out for themselves. He's not telling you how to live. Yeah, yeah. Arifa, is there yeah. anything you would like to add about this book that you feel passionately about uh, that we haven't touched on? Is there an element that you... you... Only the comedy. I don't think we did the comedy. Mm. And I think it's very comic. So I'm not one of those laugh-out-loud people. <laughs> and I'm not... Yeah, I've got really high expectations of humour. I don't read humorous novels and humorous work because I often don't find it funny. But with this, it was a sort of savage humour, and that works for me, I'm afraid. Mm. Mm -hmm. He says things like, you know, when when he has the Friends reunion, is it uh, Zverkov? Zverkov is the the dinner. He's going for a dinner with his old friends, and Zverkov is the, the, the boy he hated at school who's now going to have a farewell dinner, and this narrator's going along. And he says things like, I want to give him a good slap. I'm running to give him a slap. You know, and lines like that are, are clearly comic lines. Dostoevsky wants you to laugh in this spiky book, is spiky mm. story he's mm. written, full of despair, full of suffering, and full of jokes. They're having they're yeah, having this yeah, really yeah. polite conversation, and he's sitting there thinking, um, there's one line where he says, actually now would be a really good moment to throw a bottle at his head. And you, there's something so modern about that that I just love. It's like a yeah, yeah. it's like a really stupid version of American Psycho or something, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yes. What, yeah. What about what about at the beginning, right at the beginning where he says, Who lives beyond forty? Give me an honest answer. I tell you who does, fools and good for nothings. And I'm prepared to say this looking all my elders in the face. I'll say it to all those respectable old men, to all those sweet smelling, silver haired old men. I'll say it straight to the face of the whole world. I've got the right to speak thus because I myself will live to be 60. I'll live to be 70. I'll live to be 80. Oh, stop me. L- let me get my breath back. I mean, he's funny, right? It's funny because it's true. <laughs> Alex. Is there anything you would like to um, add? No, I actually, I, in a way, I think that's a great place to end because I think he has this reputation for being, you know, he's full of ideas. He's a deeply philosophical writer, but he's also really, weirdly, really fun to read. Um, and I think it <laughs> yeah. gets missed. Yeah. You know, you, you it, because yeah. he's saying, okay, let's talk about, you know, the, the nature of suffering, the existence of God. 
you 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 can go down those rabbit holes and and totally miss the the uh, the punchlines and things. Yeah, and they're, and it's actually mm-hmm. full of them. Yeah. Mm. All right, brilliant, John. Yeah, take us home. He is one of my literary heroes. Uh, the gambler story, you know, the the man who hits his deadline on on the under the most appalling. This book, let's just not forget. <laughs> this book, this book was written. He'd watched his wife die. And he'd watched his brother die within the space of six months, and somehow he kind of, he keeps it together to run a, to, to look after his brother's family, to run a magazine, to publish his own work. I, I mean, I think yeah, do that, Leo. Do that, Leo Tolstoy. <laughs> I suppose if we we're going to say to anybody, if you've never read any Dostoevsky, this is not a bad place to. It's not a bad I, place I to agree. start. I think we all feel that, yeah. don't we? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Ah, that's where we must end things. Um, huge thanks to Arifa and Alex for allowing us to drink down this short, sharp shock of a book. To Nikki Birch for making us sound like we're all in the same tavern. And to Unbound for the new beaver collar. <laughs> <laughs> you can download all 149 previous episodes, plus follow links, clips and suggestions for further reading by visiting our website, backlisted.fm. And we're always pleased if you contact us on Twitter and Facebook and now in Sound of Pictures on Instagram too about anything except My Phantoms by Gwen <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, You can also show your love directly by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash backlisted. We aim to survive without paid for advertising. Your generosity helps us do that. All patrons get to hear backlisted episodes early and for less than a round of vodkas at a fashionable bar on Nevsky Prospect. Lot listeners mm-hmm. get two extra lot listeds a month, our own version of a Samizdat journal where we three get to dissect and argue about the books, films, TV and music that have kept us sane in the weeks previous. Well, listen, uh, thanks, Arifa. Thanks, Alex. Yeah. You're both brilliant. Amazing. Thank you. Uh, I really love the conversation. We've all agreed with uh, the help of expert witnesses that this book is called Notes from Under the Floorboards. <laughs> and we'll see you next time. Thanks, everyone. Thank Bye. You, Bye. If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash Backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Locklisted, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.